This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. And today's episode is going to be a little bit different. You know, we cover things here about agriculture, direct-to-consumer businesses, agritourism, and all that good stuff. But today we're going to talk about a wildfire in New Mexico that's impacting a lot of farmers, ranchers, and of course, countless citizens in New Mexico. And you probably haven't even heard about this fire. So today on the show, we are interviewing Lydia Kyle, who is a rancher in New Mexico. She's a fourth generation rancher with her husband and her family. And her family is one of many that has been impacted by the wildfires in New Mexico. And so Lydia is going to talk to us today about that experience, what started the wildfire, and how technically it started out as a prescribed burn, but they lost control of it within just a couple of hours. And now, as of May 24th, it's engulfed over 300,000 total acres. And so we're going to talk about that, how she's handling it, how her family's handling it, and really, if there's anything in place in terms of like, you know, crop insurance, livestock insurance and stuff like that. Um, and if you want to head in and if you want to head to the link in the description for a bunch of links with articles for um, the fire, as well as links to Lydia's social media and her website. So this is a very interesting episode. Um, I was tagged by several people on Instagram to kind of check out Lydia and what's going on. So, yeah. Hope the fires die down very, very soon and check out Lydia and be sure to follow some links she mentions in the interview if you want to keep up to date and even donate. So yeah, hope you enjoy this episode and thanks for listening. Absolutely. All right. Well, Lydia, Kyle, welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing good. All things considered, we're doing good. Yeah. So we're really just going to kind of dive into it a little bit. You're from New Mexico and there's like a 300,000 acre wildfire going on. So, I mean, how are you doing and what's the whole thing been like so far? 
Yeah. So those who are not familiar, um, you know, it's it's good because it seems to be gaining traction in the media. You know, originally it seemed like we were just a blip on the radar. Um, New Mexico is one of those states anyway that a lot of people don't actually even know that we exist. It's like, wait a second, that's an actual state um, and not just part of Mexico. Um, but now it seems like we've started to gain some media traction. So hopefully more people have heard about what's happening in New Mexico right now. Um, New Mexico is in a historic drought. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that New Mexico is not all desert. You know, we have a very high desert uh, area on the northern side. We've got um, desert down in the south. We've got mountain ranges. We've got Ponderosa Pine. We, we've got a little bit of everything in the state. And New Mexico is in a historic drought in all areas. And now we are just being hammered across the state with various wildfires. And the irony is, is that uh, some of these wildfires were started by government approved prescribed burns. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that in a couple articles, and it's interesting that you mentioned it's slowly getting traction. When I first was tagged in some posts about you, I looked it up, and I honestly could not find any articles, and it seemed like it, the, the fire had been going on for days and days, and then I looked it up now, and luckily, it does seem like some larger news organizations are slowly picking up on it. So, that's great, but I'm sure from your viewpoint, it's extremely frustrating that it's taken this long. And I think, you know, a lot of times... Uh... There are people in our, you know, in our world and rightfully so that are absolutely fed up with big media. And so, you know, even though there was a, you know, one minute blip on Good Morning America, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't watching mainstream news anymore. And so getting the word out via podcast, independent news broadcasters and all of those things, I think is incredibly important. And it's not necessarily about the fire. It's about how it started, what it's done, and what it means moving forward for areas that are drought stricken. We have to change the way that we're doing things and the way that we're doing life in general to, you know, be able to move forward in a way that is safe. Yeah, no, totally agree. And I mean, I'm down here in Florida and I mean, we have prescribed burns all the time, but luckily we also have a lot of rain and I mean, we haven't had any huge droughts for a while. And I'm, I'm looking up on your Instagram right now, which is ranch underscore wife underscore life. And so it looks like this kind of started around what the end of April. Is that correct? Well, so that's the interesting thing. So we'll need to backtrack a little bit. And I think the facts are important, especially, you know, my testimony about what happened to our family is just that we're just one family. But as far as this fire goes and the accountability that needs to be had, um, we've got to stick to the facts. So we've actually got to go all the way back to April 6th. Hmm. So on April 6th, there was the Las Dispensas prescribed burn. And it was a Forest Service approved prescribed burn in an area of San Miguel County, New Mexico. We are a very northern county. We're high elevation and we have a lot of timber. So they went up into the National Forest. They lit this prescribed burn and 
I remember on that day, it like it's become this incredibly vivid memory. And it wasn't a core memory when it happened, but because where we are now, um, almost two months later, it is a core memory. I was actually able to see that prescribed burn out my front window where the ranch is that we manage. We have a pretty good viewpoint of the natural of the national forest. And so I saw smoke just a small plume of smoke kind of crop up in the wilderness. And when you live in the wilderness, when you live surrounded by timber, you're watching for those things, right? You know, random smoke is not okay. And um, I remember I texted one of our neighbors, her husband, um, they, they're on the volunteer fire department. And I said, Hey, I see smoke um, over by Gallinas Canyon. And she said, Oh yeah, it's just a prescribed burn. And I remember thinking to myself, what a weird day to do a prescribed burn. Like we have like 30, 40 mile an hour winds. We're in this historic drought. Like, why would you light a prescribed burn today? But whatever. Um, and then about 30 minutes later, she texted back and she says, never mind. They lost control of it. It's classified as a wildfire. So at 4 p.m. on April 6th is when this ongoing saga begins and that is when they quote unquote officially lost control of what was the lost dispensus prescribed burn and then that turned into the original fire which was the hermit's peak fire and that went on for several weeks we watched it the way that the wind blows here anyone who's been to the southwest um the wind just blows here like that's just and we're not talking like a nice light breeze we're talking like 40 50 60 mile an hour winds on a daily basis and uh the wind was pushing that fire away from us and while it was terrible to know what it was doing on the other side it was not coming towards us so we were essentially just watching you know reaching out to friends who were in the path of the fire you know how can we help that sort of thing that fire continued for several weeks obviously and then on april 19th there was another fire that the source of that fire what ignited it is quote unquote under investigation I am willing to speculate, okay, outside of malicious intent, I am willing to speculate that an ember from the original fire mm. fell in the wilderness and started a new fire. Again, malicious intent, maybe. I don't think so, though. We had no weather events, no lightning, none of those things. So one would assume that an ember from the original fire backtracked on itself and lit a new one. That was labeled the Calf Canyon Fire. And that fire started officially based on Forest Service record on April 19th. Those two fires converged upon each other, which then turned them into a complex fire. So instead of two, quote unquote, smaller fires, they really weren't small. Um, then we had one massive complex fire. That is the fire that threatened our family and the property that we managed, the cattle ranch that we manage, and caused us to evacuate on April 29th. That, so basically the first fire, they lost control of it in one day. Is that correct? They lost control of it within hours. That is wild. Now, I've got a lot of friends that are foresters down here in Florida. And I mean, they can all tell you if it's windy and a drought, you do not do a prescribed burn in any way, shape or form. And so that's right. wild that they went ahead and did it still and obviously lost control in a, in a day or like in a couple of hours, like you're saying. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in, the, in my opinion, that's where the accountability comes comes in. There has to be, you know, this was given a green stamp of approval by who? You know, not the crews who did it. They're just following instructions. And it is my understanding that they pushed back. They, I mean, that is just hearsay, but we live in a small enough community that I, I'm willing to bet that there was some pushback from those crews that were originally told to light that fire. And yet someone said somewhere in an office that it was okay to do it. And here we are 314,000 acres later and going on two months. So walk us through, if you don't mind, like what was the whole process of you guys like having to evacuate? I know you're on a ranch. I mean, I can't imagine the sort of headache and heartache that was. So if you don't mind, kind of walk us through what that process was like. Yeah, of course. And and I'll try to keep it as, you know, streamlined as possible because obviously, you know, when you're living it, it's incredibly chaotic. But for us, um, it was April 29th and we had been watching that calf Canyon fire just kind of go. And again, mm-hmm. it was coming towards us, but then on April 29th, the wind shifted and I was in town. Um, my husband called me and said, Hey, have you been watching this fire? And it's my response was like, no, like why? I mean, what else is new? There's a fire. Like, why would, why do I care at this point? Um, other than the fact that it's happening And he said, well, you know, the winds shifted. I think you need to come home and get ready to evacuate. And I was I was still kind of thinking like, no way, like no way. That's it was a long ways away. Like, you know, it was, you know, 10 miles away and the winds blowing the other direction. Well, I did what he said and I came home. And as I got closer to the ranch, it was like, oh, my gosh, that is that is getting very close. That is a lot of smoke. The wind is blowing directly at us. And so we just kind of went, my husband went and gathered our horses, the ranch's horses and kind of moved them to a central location. Um, We chose not to evacuate the cattle just because we were prioritizing. Um, And kind of our experience with horses is they're the ones that are excitable and do stupid things when excited. So, you know, if anybody was going to cause damage to themselves, if a Mm. fire came down the mountain, it would be them. Um, So (laughs) we got we got ready to get them out and chose to leave the cattle where they were simply because they were in pastures that were um, well grazed. And uh, you would hope that they would have an escape route if needed. Luckily, it didn't come to that um, type of emergency. But I went through our house and just gathered up the, you know, bare minimum essentials, legal legal document identification, um, you know, our cash that we had on hand, go bags for me and our three small children. We have three kids under the age of five. Um, and then, you know, family items essentially. And then we went kind of about our day as normal as you can, I guess. My husband was doing as much prep around the ranch as needed, but you know, the kids, we had dinner, they went to bed as normal And then the sun went down and we were standing in the front yard. My husband, one of his friends and I, we were standing in the yard kind of watching the skyline, watching the mountain range. And uh, it was just, you know, that red glow of fire. And then very quickly it went from a glow to open flame on the horizon. And we were watching, you know, 200 foot flames just consume this these tree lines um and those flames just got higher and higher and i mean by the end of it you were looking at like three four hundred foot flames we saw a fire tornado like it was just wild 
And at that point, I told my husband, the kids and I are, are leaving. Like, you know, if he chose to stay, that was kind of up to him. But then he chose to leave as well. We went and loaded horses and um, we got out. But the interesting thing is that all of this is happening at, happening at you know, nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night. There was never an evacuation notice. Uh, there was never a emergency alert that said, you know, get ready. There's kind of a tier system of ready, set, go as mm-hmm. far as evacuations. Um, we weren't even on ready. We, we weren't on set, nothing. And then by the time we got our horses loaded, we had some neighbors that came up and helped us get the last load of horses out. Um, we were pulling out of, well, I guess we were loading the last load. And that's when we saw emergency vehicles heading farther up into the, into the wilderness to evacuate people who lived there. And there were people who only got out with the clothes on their back. Um, and I don't think that's that's nothing against law enforcement. I think it was just it happened so quickly. They didn't expect it to happen that quickly. And there were a lot of people that just weren't paying attention. And, you know, I'm very thankful that my husband was paying attention. Yeah, that's good. He was. I mean, that's that's crazy. And so, I mean, you've been sharing this hashtag evac life. And I mean, just going on that on Instagram, you can see a lot of people have been impacted from this. I mean, do you have like kind of a a rough estimate on the number of people and like maybe even livestock that had to be evacuated from that area? Livestock, I don't know, but I know that the reoccurring number as far as households is 26,000 households. Wow. Are currently evacuated or displaced. Okay. Now, now what about, I mean, you're, you're taking your horses, like you have to figure out somewhere for them to go. Like, what is that like? Did you have friends or family that you could take them to that had a, a ranch kind of far off? Or, I mean, what was that whole process like? We got very lucky as far as having a network of people who were willing to just help at the drop of a hat. Um, mm. The first night that we evacuated, they went to a different ranch and that was kind of just a temporary solution. We dropped them off in their arena and and that's where they stayed for, for two days. And then um, we had other friends who manage another ranch uh, farther down the road, so to speak. Um, They had an empty, we call them cow camps. They're just uh, essentially where maybe an assistant manager or a ranch hand or someone would live on that part of the ranch. Because again, you have to think about the, the type of landscape that we're dealing with. We're dealing with ranches that are, you know, tens, 20,000s of acres. Um, And so we were able to go there. They had an empty cow camp and that's where us and our children and our horses and cats and dogs went. (laughs) Well, that's good to hear. I mean, it's really cool how, you know, in times of tragedy, communities can really kind of bond together, whether you're in the same community or not. I mean, that's good that you kind of have those people you can fall back on that are supporting you guys. Yeah, definitely. And I do know that like as far as people who didn't necessarily have that network of resources, um, a lot of the fairgrounds um, uh, from neighboring counties kind of opened up their facilities for people to bring what they needed to bring. Now, is there anything in terms of like insurance or anything like that that is also supporting you guys if something happens to your farm or livestock, for example, do you guys have those resources in place as well? Yeah, so the ranch that we manage, they obviously the uh, insurance is handled through the ranch when it comes to structures and livestock. And yeah, you can you can obviously insure your livestock and you should. 
Um, and then as far as structures, loss of income, those things, um, an insurance policy is one of those things that you really hope you don't need it. But when you do need it, you want the best one possible. Uh, as far as us as individuals, we obviously have insurance for our personal belongings. Uh, and we were very lucky that none of the structures on the ranch were lost. So we may have some losses as far as smoke damage, but it could have been a lot worse. Well, that's good to hear. And I mean, do you know, ho hopefully, I mean, hopefully this will end very soon. Do you have like a time frame of when this might be all done when they'll put out the fires? It could go, it could go on for months. We've essentially been told by multiple people in the chain of the, of command. My husband became pretty close with the guys who were, um, you know, protecting the ranch and, and kind of was working alongside them for several days. And, uh, they essentially said, until you get rain, this is going to keep going. And there is no rain projected in the forecast. And like I said, we are in a massive drought. So right now um, it's 40% contained, but it just continues to flare up in new places and threaten new communities. And, you know, containment, it can mean a lot of things in the sense that, you know, how, how much of that has already burned. Um, you know, you've got extinguishment, you've got containment. There's all these words that get thrown around. Um, I'll tell you right now, it doesn't feel very contained. Just yesterday, I saw, um, or I guess two days ago, we were seeing evacuation notices for communities that are on the other side of the mountain from us um, in the complete opposite direction. So it just keeps going. Oh, no, I can imagine. And I mean, yeah, that's wild. We actually had, I mean, not nearly this severe, but we had a wildfire here in Northwest Florida that burnt, I think something like 14,000 acres and really nobody was covering it. And so it stemmed from in 2018, we had a, a category five hurricane come here, Hurricane Michael, and it really wiped out everything. And for years, we've had just dead trees, chilling, storm debris, nobody taking care of it. And of course, somebody had, you know, a fire in their backyard and the embers spread and then it ignited like 14,000 acres in one spot. And then it apparently combined with another fire that, I mean, I think burnt like 20 or 30,000 acres or something like that. And it, I don't know, it was wild, but I, we were having people evacuate in kind of like a small version of this one. So, but luckily we saw a lot of people being supportive, law enforcement, helping people evacuate. And I think they got control of that within like a week or two, but it was wild. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine going through this in like 314,000 acres. Yeah. And, and like I said, it could, it could keep going and going and going. Um, you know, the last number that I heard is it, it spans, uh, over 450 miles. Um, so that's, that's a lot of coverage, um, as far as the distance that, you know, you're talking about. And I heard one, one of the, they were doing, they do daily briefs on the fire. And, um, one of the guys who was giving the brief essentially said, it feels like we have the tale of two fires right now because you mm -hmm. have one fire burning on one end and then you have a completely separate fire burning on the other end, but they're technically part of the same complex. And so um, it, it just keeps moving. Luckily now, um, and this is just my personal opinion, um, we haven't been having the mega high winds that we were having originally. So like when it was threatening where we lived and when it originally started, they were just up against absolutely 
catastrophic winds. And that meant that there was no way to get air support in. You know, they couldn't they couldn't do fire retardant. They couldn't do water drops. They couldn't run helicopters or scooper planes or any of those aerial support aspects that are absolutely necessary in the wilderness. We're not talking about flat grasslands where they can get their tanker trucks in there. This is wilderness area where you can't get in. And so aerial support is the only way to fight this fire. And there was a solid, you know, several weeks where they couldn't have any aerial support due to wind, or it would be one day here, two days there, and then you would have high winds again. And then the fire would just kind of take over. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. I mean, not only are the high winds spreading the fire faster and faster, but I mean, you're not the 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 planes helicopters whatever aren't able to get in so of course I mean that's no bueno that's what and 30 40 mile an hour winds I'm sure that's pushing that fire really really quickly yeah yeah and there were a lot of red flag days they call them red flag days where they were getting up to 60 mile an hour winds um so obviously you cannot have aircraft in the sky at that time they were doing a good job you know they would get them up when they could and get as much done. But again, it's just that whole, you know, one step forward, three steps back. You might have one good day of firefights happening from the sky. And then, you know, two days where you have 50 mile an hour winds. Well, that fire can cover a lot of country when it's got a 50 mile an hour wind behind it. Oh yeah. And especially when everything's dry. I mean, when you've got the high wind and the drought going on, I mean, that's unfortunately a perfect storm where it's going to spread faster and faster. Absolutely. So if people are listening and they want to help out the whole area in New Mexico affected by these fires, are there any websites or links where they can go and donate or help out in any way that they can? Well, luckily it was declared uh, a, a natural or I guess state of emergency. Uh, I can't remember the exact verbiage. So FEMA uh, is here to help as far as, you know, financial assistance for families that have been affected. So that's really great. Um, and then I've always, I've, I kind of talk about this Facebook page. Um, if you go to Facebook and you just search um, Hermit's Peak Fire or Calf Canyon Fire, there's a group that pops up and it's the inclusive Facebook group and that's for everyone. So it's mm. not just people affected by it, but it's for everyone. That's been a really great way to get connected with organizations that are helping, um, whether you're just wanting to donate, whether you want to offer support, however you can. Um, that to me has just been a good landing pad for everyone. That's good to hear. I love that people are going to social media and using it as such a huge tool to connect and share stories and share resources. I mean, that's Absolutely. awesome. I, I know social media gets a bad rap a lot, but I mean, it's really good that it's helping people during I mean, times like these. Definitely. So you're also, you know, a fourth generation um, ranch wife, ranch mama. So, I mean, you're already busy. I can imagine you've got a really cool Instagram, which I'm looking at now. You're busy. You've got a huge lifestyle out there. So what, I mean, what really got you into that? I mean, probably being born into it, but what's that whole experience been like for you? Um, as far as growing up, yeah, I was uh, born and raised into the ranching industry, um, cattle ranching specifically. I went off to college kind of straight away from it. Um, my mom always jokes and said that if someone had bet her $10,000 that I would move back and, and be a ranch wife or in agriculture at all. Um, obviously, women are huge uh, uh, huge assets to the agriculture community, wives or not. Um and she said she would have lost that bet. But I met my husband and um, 
He is a ranch manager by education and by experience. And so we decided to go back to what is my family's historic ranch in Northern California. We were there for a few years and then we decided to kind of go off on our own. And that's how we ended up in New Mexico. That's awesome. And so, I mean, you've got, you've got two kids on the farm. I'm sorry, three. Is that right? Three. Three. So, I mean, what's that like having the ranch and having them grow up on the ranch? I'm sure that's a really fun experience. It is. Um, and, and you notice it a lot when they're around other children who don't have the lifestyle that they have. Um, mm-hmm. They're incredibly adaptable. I mean, even when things like this happen, they just roll with it. Um, I mean, they, they're toddlers, so their, their understanding of what's happening, they know what's happening. They know it's dangerous. They know why we can't go home because we're still not home. Um, so we got evacuated on April 29th. We are still not home. Uh, even though the evacuation, the mandatory evacuation has been lifted off of our, off of the area where the ranch is, um, it burned down the power poles that supply power to our house. So we don't have any power. Um, so, I mean, they understand why we can't go home and why we were evacuated. They like to tell people about it, <laughs> um, but they're incredibly adaptable. They just, they roll with it. They make it, they make it happen. Um, they're very tough. And they just, they, they have, in my opinion, farm and ranch kids have a much firmer grasp on reality than, than their peers, simply because they experience life um, firsthand, even when they don't have a choice. They understand life and death. They understand natural disasters. They understand, you know, hard work. They understand long days. And yet they still have this amazing childhood where they're surrounded by nature and livestock and, you know, all of these great values and all of that. But they just have a firmer grasp on reality than most kids. Now, kind of a two-part question. Do you think more kids need some of that? And I, I feel like I know your response. And then also, if they do, how do you think more kids can kind of get that experience when they're growing up, kind of in those really important years? So that's a tough one. Um, does everybody need to be involved in agriculture to a certain extent? Um, does that make everybody a farmer or a rancher? No. Um, you know, a lot of times you have people come out and they want to be a part of something and they're actually just a liability because they don't know what they're doing. So, um, I don't, I think that kids can be resilient and adaptable and turn into good human beings, even if they don't grow up on a farm or a ranch. Like, I don't think that that's a marker of success in life. I think it's just exposing children to reality mm. um and and i don't i don't know maybe that's a a, pol- a politician answer to your question but <laughs> um you know i don't i don't ever want parents to feel less than because their kids aren't growing up on a farm you know that we have a lot of families in agriculture that you know they live in town you know their mom or their dad may work in the agriculture industry but they don't live where they're working um, so does that make their childhood less than or less impactful? No, I think it's just the mindset that we raise our children with. Are we turning them into adaptable, resilient, good human beings who understand the reality of life, that it doesn't revolve around them and that there are hard times and there are happy times and we 
roll with those punches. Um, as far as getting kids involved in those types of things, honestly, the simplest answer are organizations like 4-H, FFA, um, you know, going to different farm tours, if those are available. I mean, there are so many amazing people in this world who make it their mission to do education within the agriculture industry and kind of open their doors to their operations for the for the consumer to see, you know, give your kids the opportunity to go see those things. And, and it gets them a little bit closer to what our kids have. I, that's a perfect way of explaining it. I mean, I actually saw somebody's Facebook post a couple of days ago and they were talking about this high school class that was graduating. It was something like out of 10 kids that were graduating, val not valedictorian, but like 10 kids out of the top of their class, of those 10, eight of them were in FFA. Of those eight, six were chapter officers, but all of those eight weren't going into production agriculture at all. They were going to be like biologists, chemists, or engineers or something like that. But I mean, through opportunities like 4-H, 4-FFA or whatever, you have competitions, you have leadership exercises, you have a lot of stuff that you can expose yourself to and really learn and latch on to like some hard work and stuff like that. So that's also, and that's a really good viewpoint. You don't all have to be involved in agriculture, but exposing kids to tough times and good times really helps them develop a little bit more. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um well, Lydia, we won't keep you long. I know you're super duper busy, but um, best of luck with everything. We'll keep you guys in our thoughts. We'll be praying for you guys. Um, and I'll have to shoot everybody your contact information and especially your Instagram to kind of keep update and everything. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully we'll get some rain soon and we can call it quits on this. But if not, we're going to keep trudging through it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hopefully hoping in soon for you guys. Um, best of luck and we'll continue sharing your story. But thanks again for letting us know everything and just kind of keeping us updated on everything about the New Mexico fires. So um, uh, best of luck. We'll have to have you on with a longer form interview to learn more about you and your ranching story. But thanks so much for being on. Sounds good. Thank you.